If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the April 19th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Based on your feedback last week, tonight is another book club, but this week, we're devoting the entire show to Armistead Maupin's iconic Tales of the City books. The Tales of the City newspaper serial was first published in the Pacific Sun in Marin County just a few weeks before IMRU's 1974 debut. It opens with the arrival of Mary Ann Singleton, a naive young woman from Cleveland, Ohio, who is visiting San Francisco on vacation when she impulsively decides to stay. Mary Ann Singleton was 25 years old when she saw San Francisco for the first time. She came to the city alone for an eight-day vacation. On the fifth night, she drank three Irish coffees at the Buena Vista, realized that her mood ring was blue, and decided to phone her mother in Cleveland. Hi, Mom, it's me. Oh, darling, your daddy and I were just talking about you. There was this crazy man on Macmillan and Wife who was strangling all these secretaries, and I just couldn't help thinking... Mom, I know, just crazy old mom wearing herself sick over nothing. But you never can tell about, Mom, I want you to do me a favor. Of course, darling. Oh, uh, before I forget it, I, I ran into Mr. Lassiter yesterday at the Ridgemont Mall, and he said the office is just falling apart with you gone. They don't get that many good secretaries at Lassiter Fertilizers. Mom, that's sort of why I called. Yes, darling? I want you to call Mr. Lassiter and tell him I won't be in on Monday morning. Oh, Marianne, I'm not sure you should ask for an extension on your vacation. It's not an extension, Mom. Well, then why... I'm not coming home, Mom. Don't be silly, darling. Mom, I'm not being silly. I like it here. It feels like home already. Marianne... If there's a boy, there's no boy. I just thought about this for a long time. Well, don't be ridiculous. You've been there five days. You aren't listening, Mom. I'm trying to tell you I'm a grown woman. Well, act like it then. You can't just run away from your family and friends and go live with a bunch of hippies and mass murderers. You've been watching too much TV. Okay, then what about the, the horoscope? What? The horoscope, that crazy man, the killer. Mom, 
the Zodiac. Same difference. And what about earthquakes? I saw that movie, Marianne. I nearly died when Ava Gardner... Will you just call Mr. Lassiter for me? Her mother began to cry. You won't come back. I just know it. Mom, please, I will. I promise. But you won't be the same. No, I hope not. When it was over, Marianne left the bar and walked through Aquatic Park to the bay. She stood there for several minutes, staring at the beacon on Alcatraz. She made a vow not to think about her mother for a while. At nine o'clock, she was the first customer of the day at a rental agency on Lombard Street. She wanted a view, a deck, and a fireplace for under $175. Jeez, said the rental lady. Awful picky for a girl without a job. She ended up with three possibles. The first one had an uptight landlady who asked if Marianne took marijuana. The second was a pink stucco fortress on Upper Market with gold glitter and the ceiling plaster. The last was on Russian Hill. The house was on Barbary Lane, a narrow wooded walkway off Leavenworth between Union and Filbert. It was a well-weathered three-story structure made of brown shingles. The landlady was a fifty-ish woman in a plum-colored kimono. I'm Mrs. Madrigal, she said cheerfully, as in medieval. Take your time. There's a partial view if you count that little patch of bay peeping through the trees. Utilities included, of course. Small house, nice people. She walked to the window where the wind made her kimono flutter like brilliant plumage. What do you say, dear? Marianne said yes. Good. You're one of us, then. Welcome to 28 Barbary Lane. Mrs. Madrigal smiled. There was something a little careworn about her face. But she was really quite lovely, Marianne decided. Do you have any objection to pets? Dear, I have no objection to anything. One of the most iconic passages from gay literature's most iconic story is found in the first Tales book. And it's Michael Mouse Tolliver's coming out letter to his conservative parents. Tonight, as read by its author, Armistead Maupin. Dear Mama, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write. Every time I try to write you and Papa, I realize I'm not saying the things that are in my heart. That would be okay if I loved you any less than I do, but you are still my parents, and I am still your child. I have friends who think I'm foolish to write this letter. I hope they're wrong. I hope their doubts are based on parents who loved and trusted them less than mine do. I hope especially that you'll see this as an act of love on my part, a sign of my continuing need to share my life with you. I wouldn't have written, I guess, if you hadn't told me about your involvement in the Save Our Children campaign. That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth, that your own child is homosexual, and that I never needed saving from anything except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama. Not for what I am, but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejection through fear of something I knew even as a child was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. No, Mama, I wasn't recruited. No seasonal homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, You're all right, kid. You can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like anyone else. 
You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends, all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though, you can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own with the help of the city that has become my home. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but San Francisco is full of men and women, both straight and gay, who don't consider sexuality in measuring the worth of another human being. These aren't radicals or weirdos, Mama. They are shop clerks and bankers and little old ladies and people who nod and smile to you when you meet them on the bus. Their attitude is neither patronizing nor pitying, and their message is so simple. Yes, you are a person. Yes, I like you. Yes, it's all right for you to like me, too. I know what you're thinking now. You're asking yourself, what did we do wrong? How did we let this happen? Which one of us made him that way? I can't answer that, Mama. In the long run, I guess I really don't care. All I know is this. If you and Papa are responsible for the way I am, then I thank you with all my heart, for it's the light and the joy of my life. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama, and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can tell you except that I'm the same Michael you've always known. You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Marianne sends her love. Everything is fine at 28 Barbary Lane. Your loving son, Michael. Mouse's letter, which has become the gold standard for all such family reveals, was based on Armistead Malpin's real coming-out letter to his family in Orlando. After the publication of the first six books, Armistead paused for nearly 20 years. Then in 2007, proclaimed, Michael Tolliver lives! I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of Michael Tolliver Lives. Characters in the book include Michael Tolliver, Brian Hawkins, Marianne Singleton, and our beloved Mrs. Madrigal. But you've been quoted as saying that this is not a sequel. I said that because I wanted to prepare people for the fact that it's a first-person narrative as opposed to a third-person in the first six books. Eighteen years have passed. This is a more contemplative book told from Michael's standpoint, the central gay character. And I simply wanted to use him as a vehicle through which I could examine issues of aging and survivors of HIV and intergenerational romance with gay people. A lot of things that uh, have been on my mind and I felt that I could explain through Michael. And how's Michael doing these days? He's doing pretty great because I'm doing pretty great. I fell in love three years ago, and my partner and I were married in British Columbia in February, and I've just been given a new lease on life. It's been really wonderful. If I'd known that life was going to be this good at 63, I think I might have been a little more cheerful along the way. So uh, 
Michael is uh, surviving HIV and has a younger partner, quelle coincidence, and has to deal with some of the issues that he's always had to deal with, namely his uh, right-wing family back in Florida. And through his conflict with them, I've tried to examine the whole red state, blue state thing and the way our thinking in America has become so divided. Speaking of Michael's younger partner, in the book, he meets him online. How did you meet your partner? I saw him online, the same way Michael did, on a website for older gay men. There were a lot of younger guys on there, guys in their 20s and 30s who were actually looking for older partners. And I was very smitten with his photograph and uh, pointed him out to a number of my friends and posted it above my computer. And uh, one day, not too long after that, I actually saw him on the street and chased him halfway down the block and said, uh, didn't I see you on a website? And he said, actually, I run that website. I own it. Um, I should probably say that it's daddyhunt.com, something he started about four years ago because he said that he was tired of people making the assumption that because he was interested in older guys, he was out looking for sugar daddies. He's a very independent guy, and ever since he was 15 years old, he's been attracted to older men. It's simply what he's looking for. So that website has become sort of his, I mean, that's sort of his politics. He said it's a kind of second coming out that you have to do because a lot of gay people look askance at intergenerational relationships. I had a wonderful model for it in my friends uh, Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, the great novelist and his uh, artist partner who was 30 years his junior. When I met them back in the 70s, Chris was... 75, and Don was 45. And they were the best couple I'd ever seen. I mean, they were something to aspire to. They had a vibrant, interesting life. They adored each other. There was no question that they were in it for good with each other. And I thought of them when I met my Christopher. And so it it was not particularly a scary proposition. We're getting older as individuals and as a community. But do you think we're getting more mature I do, because basically, um, you know, the boomer generation, which is sort of my generation, I'm maybe kind of a early boomer, I was born at the end of the war, have always sort of examined their own lives, maybe even been a little selfish, and so now we're probably going to be a little selfish about that and figure out how the hell do we do this. You know, there's a really interesting thing that's happened in the Bay Area. A group of people have put together a gay and lesbian senior independent living facility over in Oakland. They've bought the old, or rather, I think they're leasing the old Lake Merritt Hotel, which is this beautiful Mediterranean deco hotel that's been thoroughly modernized. And they're opening it to gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender and their straight friends with the idea that the life that we have, you know, in our youth and middle age can continue as you get older. A lot of older gay people are worried about uh, having to go to some big anonymous facility somewhere where there's rampant homophobia, not only among the other residents, but among the caregivers themselves. That's kind of a frightening proposition. And a lot of us spent the first quarter of our lives in hiding and really have no intention of going back there for the last quarter. So this is a great step forward, I think. And they've paid me the compliment of calling it the Barbary Lane Senior Community. You have a lot of fans. What's their response been? It was hard for them to adjust to the notion of this coming out of the voice of one of the characters. But most of them have invariably said, once I got three pages into it, I was right back in the story. And they were grateful for the more intimate look at this character, as well as the old characters that emerge in the course of the telling of this novel. Besides giving us the 411 on our old friends from 28 Barbary Lane... You introduce us to a few new ones. 
Which new character has gotten the biggest reaction? There's a character in Michael Tolliver Lives named Jake Greenleaf, who's a trans man. And I put him in there because this is a phenomenon that we're seeing a lot in San Francisco. Many trans men who identify as gay men and go and hang out in gay bars in hopes of meeting gay men. And that strikes me as the the ultimate bravery to go into a situation like that without the plumbing that the men in the bar might be looking for, but simply trying to hook up as, uh, you know, one soul to another, one man to another. And it struck me as something worth writing about. The particular story in the, in Michael Tolliver Lives, where Michael meets Jake for the first time, was inspired by a friend of mine named uh, Mark Weigel, who met a trans man in a bar and realized about halfway through the conversation what the situation was and decided to go home with him. And uh, it struck me as something that was really worth writing about because basically transgendered people challenge us all to think about what our definitions are of what it means to be a man or a woman and what is gender and how much of it is in the head. Apparently a lot of it is in the head because I've heard from a number of gay men who've told me that they have a crush on Jake, the character in uh, Michael Tolliver Lives. Most of your writing has been inspired by your life. Is there ever pressure to get out of the house and live the next book? You know, it's funny. Life has a way of coming to me and telling me where the story is going to go next. It certainly did in terms of meeting Christopher and giving me new energy to write. And in my last novel, The Night Listener, my breakup with my former partner did the same thing. Some people thought that was way too gloomy a novel, and I imagine there are people who think that uh, Michael Tolliver lives is way too cheerful, but I go where my moods take me. Armstead, I'd love for you to read something from Michael Tolliver Lives. This is the beginning of a chapter called The Family Circle. It occurred to me recently that this is probably the last house I'll ever own. It was the first as well, come to think of it. The endless possibilities of my youth have been whittled down to this little plot on the hillside, this view of the valley, this perfect lamp, this favorite chair, this flock of wild parrots breakfasting in the hawthorn tree. I'm still enough of a southerner to love the notion of my own land, my own teacup terra. It's not unimaginable that Ben and I could one day pick up and move to a condo in Palm Springs or Hawaii, but I wouldn't bank on it. This is my home on the deepest level. It comforts me in ways I've forgotten how to measure. And were we to leave for momentarily greener pastures, I know we'd harbor the fear of all San Franciscans who leave, that the real estate market, that cruelest of sentinels, would never let us back in. This has been a conversation with author, activist, legend, Armistead Maupin. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Remembering Frida Kahlo, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 2001, the U.S. Postal Service issued its first stamp honoring an Hispanic woman. On June 21st of that year, they issued a 34-cent commemorative stamp of Frida Kahlo, the world-renowned Mexican artist who created striking self-portraits. That same day, a similar stamp of Kahlo was issued in Mexico. U.S. Postal Service Vice President of Diversity Development Benjamin Acasio said, The Frida Kahlo stamp allows us to reach out across communities to let everyone know that this organization has a commitment to diversity that involves both our customers and our employees. Our stamp program is a wonderful reflection of this commitment. Kahlo stood out from the crowd not just because she was Hispanic and bisexual, but because she was physically challenged due to a terrible bus accident in 1925. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Autumn Reinhardt Simpson. Hello, I'm Armistead Maupin, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. 2010 brought a sequel to the very last sequel. This one called Marianne and Autumn. There should be a rabbit hole, is what she was thinking. There should be something about this hillside, some lingering sense memory. The view of Alcatraz, say, or the foghorns, or the mossy smell of the planks beneath her feet, that would lead her back to her lost wonderland. Everything around her was familiar, but somehow foreign to her own experience, like a place she had seen in a movie but had never actually visited. She had climbed these weathered steps, what, thousands of times before, but there wasn't a hint of homecoming, nothing to take her back to where she used to be. The past doesn't catch up with us, she thought. It escapes from us. At the landing, she stopped to catch her breath. Beneath her, the street intersecting with Barbary Lane tilted dizzily toward the bay, a collision of perspectives, like one of those wonky Escher prints that were everywhere in the 70s. The bay was bright blue today, the hard, fierce blue of a gas flame. If there was fog rolling in, and there must be, given the insistence of those horns, she couldn't see it from here. I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of Mary Ann in Autumn. And what's the book about? This is basically the eighth book in my Tales of the City series that started back in 1978, where I first began following my ingenue, the 25-year-old Mary Ann Singleton, and she's 57 years old now and has come back to San Francisco after a 20-year absence with a couple of major calamities going on in her life. And the only person she has left to talk to is her old friend, Michael Tolliver, Mouse Tolliver, who is now happily married to a younger husband and who agrees to put her up in their little backyard garden cottage. And the story kind of takes off from there. And how many total books will there be in this series? Well, it depends on how long I live, I suppose. I'm probably going to keep doing it, but I, it's hard for me to commit to saying what I'm going to do next because I used to write serially in the newspaper, and I felt a certain panic around that. And I don't want to feel panic at my age. I want to be able to be able to be moved by whatever comes along. So if suddenly something else happens to me that makes me want to go off in an entirely different direction, I kind of reserve the right to do that. I've done it a couple times before, as you know, um, Maybe the Moon, which was inspired by my friendship with a dwarf actress working in Hollywood. Complete departure, but I, I did include one or two characters from Tales of the City. And then there was The Night Listener, which was also grew out of a sort of personal mystery story. So life provides for me, and I, I use it. That's pretty much my technique. How long have you been planning or thinking about this particular book? The central mystery in Marianne and Autumn, and you know what I'm talking about, we won't talk about it, 
the seed for that was planted in Sureview 21 years ago. There is a page in Sureview in the early, maybe the first dozen or so pages, I'll tell you after we're off the air, that completely sets up what happens in Marianne and Autumn. I've been hanging on to it for 21 years. Wait a minute. I, I wrote something down. You said to me last time I was in San Francisco, I like having written, but I'm not driven to write. Yes. I'm not one of those compulsive writers. I don't have to get up every morning and write to exist. I like having written, and I, you know, I'm proud of what I've done, but I work very slowly. I maybe write one or two pages a day when I'm working. It doesn't mean I'm not working. I'm concentrating on it, but I'm, I'm a perfectionist about the language and the euphony of the words and all of that. And I like to think that's why people find themselves plowing through the books, because I've taken great care to, you know, I've given them a run through the forest with no logs to stumble over, and that takes time. So much of your writing is inspired by events in your life. Do you ever have to pause the writing to live some life and fuel that process? I do. I have to fill up again. If I were writing all the time, I wouldn't be able to do it. But I have to go out and live my life and have things happen to me that stir me or inspire me in order to go back. Sometimes that just means going to another place, you know, taking a holiday somewhere and letting the the atmosphere of a place seep into my experience. There is a mountain retreat that Michael and Ben take Marianne to in Marianne and Autumn that is basically a place that my husband Christopher and I go to. And uh, I've taken care to disguise its locale, but it's uh, a magical place to me. And I thought that it would bring life to the story if I was able to draw on it. Michael in the book and in the previous book has married a hot younger man. Did you marry a hot younger man just for the book? <laughs> for your fans who did it for us? <laughs> That's it. I, 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 Christopher's the best thing that's ever happened to me, and uh, I think it would be crazy if it didn't find its way into my work some way. But I say that with a great deal of caution because I, not everything that happens to them in the book happens to us, but certainly emotionally, the emotional landscape of that relationship is my own. Whatever comes your way, you can contain it if you write about it. When I had a really bad breakup 15 years ago, I, I used it in a novel because I had to explain my life to myself in some way. Chris knows that I, I use certain things, and he sees everything before it goes in. And he knows that I, more than anything, want to honor what we have because it's the most important thing to me. So nothing would go in that would embarrass us or overexpose us. Chris has no drive for attention in any way. That's one of the things I love about him. He's a very quietly self-assured man. And as a matter of fact, he told me recently when I was trying to persuade him to come on portions of the book tour with me that he really hates feeling like Dr. Phil's wife. <laughs> you know you know how she sits in the audience on his, his uh, talk show and waves occasionally. And I know she probably has a career of her own, but I got his point really clearly. It's kind of a drag. So I would not want to step over that line in any way. If you're just tuning in, I'm Steve Pride, and this is a conversation with Armstead Maupin about Marianne and Autumn in his Tales of the City series, the first portions of which were published initially 
as a newspaper serial starting on August 8, 1974. That led to eight novels, the previous being Tales of the City, More Tales of the City, Further Tales of the City, Baby Cakes, Significant Others, Sure of You, and Michael Tolliver Lives. Armistead, what made Tales of the City so radical yet accessible at the same time? First and foremost, I'm a storyteller, so I'm trying to involve people. And yes, I've always been talking about gay people and to a certain degree advocating for gay people in my work. But I've also included us in the overall tapestry of life. And that's, I think that's what we're all looking for, is the sense that we belong in the world. We're not some little subculture that's hunkered down against the world, even though we do feel that way sometimes. But we're part of the world itself. And what I've advocated for always from the beginning, since back when Harvey Milk and I were both saying the same thing at the same time, was we need to be visible. And that's what I tried to do in Tales of the City. And it was a loose enough format that it allowed me to take on social issues and slip them through in a way that people barely feel them happening until they get emotionally involved with the characters. They're mostly reading a story, and then they realize they care. I was very conscious of the various human scenarios that I explored within the context of tales. In the beginning, I thought, I really want to show what it's like for a straight woman and a gay man to be friends. And then I brought on board Mona, and I showed that she had some experience that she was a lesbian, and how a lesbian and a gay man could be friends at a time when that was not widely... Before AIDS, uh, you, you didn't see that nearly as much, but when the women stepped so valiantly up to the plate when gay men were dying, you saw those friendships beginning. Dee Dee and Dorothea raising their twin children together 25 years ago or whenever it was, that was a pretty new thing. that You didn't see that kind of uh, family dynamic explored. Not only is there something for everyone, but the spotlight moves from book to book. My instinct is to shift around, and sometimes the characters themselves show up and say, I need a little more time now, and uh, I let it happen. I didn't plan on having Dee Dee in this novel, Dee Dee Halcyon Wilson, hyphenated with her partner's name. I didn't plan on having her in this book, but she sort of showed up when I needed her, roughly in the way that she did for Mary Ann, and I felt a huge warmth having her back in. I, and and I, I'm not spooky about this. It's not some sort of you know, metaphysical hoo-ha or pretentious writer talk. I, they're just portions of my own personality, really. I can't point to any one person and say, this person is that character. They occupy some little corner of my own heart. For me, it was nearly impossible to read this book without thinking about Laura Linney, the actress who played Mary Ann in all three of the Tales of the City miniseries. Hi, I'm Robert. Marianne. At the risk of sounding like Charles Manson, could I get a little vegetable advice? Not scallions. No, it's asparagus. <laughs> Hollandaise, actually. Look, I try it, I do everything right, I get glob. It's the butter. It, it, has, it has to be hot. It has to be really, really hot. <laughs> Can't leave you alone for a minute. Michael, Marianne, Marianne, Michael. Hi. Hi. She was just helping me with Hollandaise. Oh, good. He's awful at Hollandaise. It's interesting that you should say that you think of Marianne as Laura or you hear Laura's voice because so do I. This novel, as you know, Marianne and Autumn, is dedicated to Laura. 
And I told her, I sent her an email some months back saying I was going to do this. And I said, because you gave her a voice that I can't stop hearing. So it's a wonderful literary aid for me to be able to hear her voice when I'm writing the character. I used to hear my voice, and that was tough. It was hard to separate myself from this woman. And now I can hear Laura's, and I can actually think about how she might laugh in the middle of a sentence in the way that Laura does that and use it. What do you hope people take away from this installment? I suppose it has a lot to say about uh, a point in our lives when we look back and things that we wish we could change. And usually it has more to do with what we didn't do than what we did do. And I think that's part of what Marianne is feeling in Marianne and Autumn. I want to celebrate the notion that friendships do survive, that they can survive long periods of neglect, actually, if that spark is still there and two people make an effort to make it happen again. And uh, I hope they have some fun with it. I really was feeling gothic this time around. I used to do that a lot in the old days with some of the early Tales novels. There were some really crazy and slightly dark themes that were going on, and, and I, I wanted to do that again. I wanted to feel the sort of uh, the Hitchcockian texture of, of San Francisco and, and use it. I was heavily influenced by Hitchcock as a child. I saw all those movies. I watched those half-hour TV shows. It was how I learned about storytelling. Well, I'll take the hitch out of it in post. Don't worry. <laughs> I, was, I was heavily influenced by that as well. <laughs> You've had an absolutely amazing life. What surprised you most about the journey? Well, if I look back at my journey, I, first of all, feel very lucky that I'm here because so many of the men that I loved and cared about didn't get to make the journey with me. So I think it's almost obscene to be my generation and complain about being old. I just don't do it. Maybe privately, I think, where did that ache and pain come from? But I, I really am happy to be where I am and feel very, very blessed that I, I made it here. And I think most gay men of my generation have attained a certain wisdom because we've been through various hells and we're still here. I'm a great supporter of Dan Savage's It Gets Better campaign because I think long ago we should have been actually using our power as adults to tell gay kids that they can't listen to the adults that are spewing homophobia. They simply can't listen to them. If it's their parents or their preachers or politicians, they have to realize that those people are wrong and fundamentally evil, really, in my mind for not imagining what it must be like for a gay kid. Why these people who are not gay are supposed to be handing down the notion that it's a choice when you talk to every gay person and say, oh, I knew at a very early age and it was who I was and that's the way it was. Why should they be the experts on the subject? We're the experts and we need to share what we know with, with children who are suffering. Armistead Maupin, reading from Marianne in Autumn. When the sun dipped behind Twin Peaks, she went for a walk around the neighborhood, mostly to lift her spirits. Like Russian Hill, this side of town was etched with bowered stairs and secret alleys, and she'd always been a pushover for that kind of charm. Back in Connecticut, whenever she'd grown homesick, or whatever the word might be, it wouldn't be the bridge or the pyramid or the cable cars that would call her back to San Francisco. It would be the raw essence of the place, its DNA, something that was everywhere but nowhere, a snippet of bay filigreed with trees, 
or a row of houses on a fog-bound hillside, glowing like fairy lights buried in angel hair. This has been a conversation with Armistead Maupin. Marianne and Autumn is from HarperCollins Publishers. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Don't go away. We'll be right back with the final tales of the city chapter after this quick break. Brazilian rock singer Renato Russo, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in Rio de Janeiro in 1960, Renato Manfredini Jr. suffered from a debilitating bone disease in his teens and was unable to walk. A few years and surgeries later, he was as good as new and had become one of Brazil's most popular rock singers. He took the name Russo, a triple tribute to philosophers Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Bertrand Russell and artist Henri Rousseau. In 1978, he formed his own band, Abordo Electrico, which reorganized in 1979 to form Le Jao Urbana. A 1985 contract with EMI Records rocketed them to fame. Russo came out as bisexual in 1989 in his song, Boys and Girls. The next year, he came out as gay. In 1996, illness had overcome Russo again. He died of AIDS with his father by his side. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Autumn Reinhardt Simpson. Hello, I'm Don Bacardi, and you are listening to RMRU Radio Magazine. RMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. 2014 brought us closure with the days of Anna Madrigal, where Armistead's tale of the city characters journeyed to the Nevada desert for one final adventure. Hi, I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of The Days of Anna Madrigal. And what's the new book about? The Days of Anna Madrigal involves, of course, one of my central characters, the 92-year-old transgender former landlady of 28 Barbary Lane. She wants to return to her home in Winnemucca, where, as a 16-year-old boy, she had an experience that she needs to deal with now all these years later, 75 years later. It also involves the members of her logical family who are traveling to Burning Man, the Burning Man Festival in Nevada, and the ways in which their lives intertwine and reflect on each other. Why are you finishing this series? Why conclude it after 40 years? Why not conclude it after 40 years? I want it to have a shape, you know. I want it to be a fixed thing. And uh, I felt this was the appropriate time to do it. I also would like to do other things, to not be doing this unto death, as it were. You've done it before you took a long break between two of the books to write several others. Yes, I did, but I don't think it's likely that I, I will not return to this story. I can tell you that. So I won't see you here again in 20 years with the very, very last day. Well, I hope Michael. that if I do something else that you might be interested in that as well, Steve. Thinking of that, we are an LGBT show, and almost every book you write has enough content for us to be so interested in it. Do you consider yourself a gay writer? Well, I'm gay and I'm a writer. I don't consider myself a subdivision of writing. The implication of gay writer. I am proud of the fact that I was one of the first 
gay activists writing stories about gay people. And the Times Review that came out yesterday referred to my early work as radical social manifestos disguised as entertainment. And that, that's exactly the way I saw myself. So yes, it's always been an agenda of mine, but I don't see any reason to subdivide. I think it puts you off somewhere and prolongs the dissemination of the message, you know. Or there used to be a special shelf at Barnes & Noble for the gay books. Yeah, and that's why they could keep it away from the kids. I want it out in front where the kids can see it. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me how it all began. Well, I was uh, trying to write a story for the Pacific Sun about the hetero cruising scene at the Marina Safeway in San Francisco. On Wednesday nights, straight kids were going down there and chatting each other up in the vegetable bins, basically, in that area. (laughs) You know, it was before the Internet, so that's what you did. It was a way you could go find people. And for young women, it was easier and safer because they didn't have to go hang out in a bar. I couldn't find anybody that would talk to me about this phenomenon, so I made up a young woman, Marianne Singleton, and uh, wrote a little chapter that they liked at a newspaper called The Pacific Sun, and then I was kind of off and running. I started to follow her, and I followed Michael Tolliver, the gay man that she meets at the supermarket. Any idea that 40 years later there'd be nine books and you'd be touring the country talking about your life's work? No, I really didn't have that idea at all. I was so desperate to get it done. I mean, I've always just been that way about writing anyway. It's been very much in the moment, and I just want to get this right. And I'm just happy that I had a structure that could grow organically, and I could grow along with it. I think my writing has gotten better. There are people who swear by my early stuff. But in my own vision, I think I've become a much better writer, a much more careful writer. I can do that now, actually, because I'm not on deadline. So no, I really didn't. And I feel really grateful for the position I'm in right now. Well, how difficult was it to write about gay characters and trans characters and just sexuality and sex in the early 70s? It wasn't difficult to write about it. It was getting it published was the hard part. (laughs) Writing about it was easy because I had the material all around me, and I just had to report on it. Nobody touched it yet, for the most part, certainly not in popular fiction, certainly not in a newspaper. And uh, I was able to tell these stories, but I had to wrangle with my editors every day, every day, over the language that was used, over the things I was allowed to say. The fact that uh, Anna Madrigal, who was 56 at the time, was transgender was something I was not permitted to say for the first year. They thought it would alienate the readers. Uh, turned out to be a pretty good stricture, really, because I was able to make people love her without knowing exactly what her background was, so that by the time the information came along, they were rooting for her. And everyone does love Anna Madrigal. I mean, it's one of the most beloved characters in contemporary literature. Why is that? I think it has something to do with the fact that she's a parental figure without the usual parental strictures, without the, you must do this if you want to be a good child. She really just wants what her kids want, what her so-called kids want, her tenants. She's really rooting for them in every possible way and making subtle suggestions, but basically she's a non-judgmental parent. She's a little bit psychic. I let that seep through from time to time. She doesn't make a big deal out of it. And, uh, She puts joints on their door (laughs) when they arrive as tenants. 
so, you know, what's not to like? And she coined the term that has really resonated in the gay community of logical family. Yeah, the notion of the logical family versus the biological family, a family that really fits with you because you've chosen these people and they love you for who you are. It's not to say that members of your biological family can't also be part of your logical family, but not necessarily. And you see the conflict every holiday season when people dread to go spend time with people that push their buttons in the wrong way and criticize and compare and do all sorts of things that happen when there's only biology ruling the fact that you get together. Well, I think we skipped a little bit of the pressure you were under at the newspaper to actually include a decent ratio of gays versus straights. They were afraid that the homos would start uh, outnumbering the heteros. So they had a chart in the office to make sure that it didn't happen. And you introduced a dog? I did an episode in which Franny Halcyon, who's the old Hillsborough matron, she comes home drunk one afternoon and uh, passes out in her herb garden. And she wakes up and her dog is humping her leg. And uh, I made them put the dog in the heterosexual column. <laughs> it, was, it was just a way of, you know, getting their goat. And they took the chart down. I mean, it's really obscene when you think about it. Lists of homosexuals, you know, crazy. One of the big headlines of the year, I guess, was Armstead Maupin leaves San Francisco. What did San Francisco mean to you and why did you leave? I left partially for the reasons that a lot of artists are leaving, that it got so, so expensive. And I found myself with a couple of mortgages that were really hard to handle. Um, book sales have not been great in recent years. My royalties have gone way down. It's ironic because I feel a greater popularity than ever before. Maybe that has to do with social networking. I don't know. But we realized that we could sell our house and get a 15-acre adobe house, 3,000-square-foot house at the end of a dirt road in this beautiful setting. We could do all that and pay much less of a mortgage. So that was the practical factor. We could have moved to somewhere. There aren't many cheap areas of San Francisco at all. And I didn't want to move under the edge of the Bay Area because I figured I'd always be in a car headed for the city. And I'm going to be 70 in May, and I kind of wanted a new experience. I may end up back there. Um, I was in contact with a realtor recently saying, is there a little pied-a-terre that we could rent? I told him how much we could spend and that we wanted it to have a parking place and be dog-friendly. And he wrote back and said, you may have to put out for that one. <laughs> this is Steve Pride, and I'm talking to Armistead Maupin about his final Tales of the City novel. The Days of Anna Madrigal. The last novel, I don't want to go into much detail because it was such a wonderful surprise, the last part. But basically, it's about a journey to Burning Man. And they leave the city for most of the book. And since you've left the city, is leaving the city sort of a metaphor for ending the series, which is so San Francisco? I suppose it could be seen that way. It wasn't really deliberate on my part. I wanted to uh, go back to Anna's past, and that meant that I would have flashbacks to Winnemucca, Nevada. And uh, I had gone to Burning Man and realized it was an amazing source of material and fresh, and it seemed compatible with the Tales universe, this place where all sorts of people collide and uh, surprise each other. 
Burning Man is just the land of serendipity. Nothing can be planned there. There are no cell phones out there on that vast playa. So you just go out and let life happen to you, and you bump into people you haven't seen, and it's kind of wonderful in that way, and it works very much for my stories. And both of those places are in Nevada. And I discovered in going to Winnemucca for the first time ever, after writing about it for 35 years, that there's a bumpy dirt road that links Winnemucca to the Black Rock Desert. And that struck me as uh, very useful in terms of my storytelling. What came first, going to Burning Man or the idea to set the book at Burning Man? I think going too, yeah, going too. It was just something we planned to do. Chris had been four times before and uh, really wanted to be with me as I experienced it. So I learned the whole process, and that was helpful too in writing the novel. Just the, you can, in the Michael learning what he has to do to go there, it also tells the reader what this singular experience is like. One of the things you have in common with Mouse is a younger, hot husband. I plead guilty, yes. So do you have the same insecurities that he expresses in the book? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I know we've got a lasting marriage, and I know he loves me, but that doesn't stop you from having insecurities. And it's not so much about the age as just the notion that you've found something that's really perfect, that feels good, and you worry about losing it for one reason or another. As he's pointed out to me many times, he's probably going to be the one to lose the husband because of my age, although none of these things can be counted on, and that's one of the points of tales, that we we have to seize the moment and live in the moment and appreciate it, be grateful all the time. And Chris and I do that with each other. It's very satisfying. One of the themes of the book is Mrs. Madrigal wants to leave like a lady. In a sense, is that what you're doing with this final book? Yeah, I think I am, really. Um, It's a kind of a counterpoint to book six, where I first thought I was ending the series, and Marianne is leaving San Francisco for New York. This is a different kind of departure. And she, she vows to do this gracefully, the way she's done everything else gracefully. But yes, that's why it makes a logical end for the series that she's preparing for death. What do you want people to take away in this final chapter? The notion of making sure when you go to bed at night that the day you've just spent has been fully appreciated and that you've done everything you want to do, that you've expressed the love you want to express to other people. Anna says to Brian towards the end of The Days of Anna Madrigal something to the effect of, He's running around trying to get everybody together at Burning Man, which is really hard to do. People that Anna knows, and he wants a sort of family reunion, and she just looks at him and says, Dear, there's not going to be any tidying up. We don't need to tidy anything up. We know what we need to know, all of us. You all know what you need to know from me, and everything from now on is free time. She sort of gives him permission to relax, And I think we all have to do that with each other, to know that how we feel about the people we love is there already. And if a bus were to hit us in five minutes, no tidying up would be necessary. I love that idea. Part of the charm of the series, to me at least, is you've, with each book, had your finger right on the pulse of where the community is. A lot of pop cultural references and things of the day, and I guess that came from the newspaper serial. But talk a little bit about how the gay identity itself has changed over these last 40 years. 
oh, well, when I started out, my identity was as a crazy person and a criminal. <laughs> That's what was the status 40 years ago. I think it wasn't, well, it was 1975 that the American Psychiatric Association finally removed it from the list of mental illnesses. And then, of course, the whole notion of uh, marriage equality, which I have never seen from the standpoint of the criticism you hear from some people is, oh, you want to be assimilated. You want to mimic the heterosexual model. No, I want to be recognized in the eyes of the law. I want it known that my love is the equal to other people. And we've had uh, extraordinary leaps just with the marriage equality in California. If I were to die tomorrow, Chris can receive my Social Security. That's no small thing. It pretty much pays for our mortgage. So all of those things have come about. And I think there's still a lot of self-loathing among gay men. I guess it must be among lesbians as well, obviously. And uh, we have a ways to go before we fully accept the notion that what we feel is as real and good as that of the things that have been accepted by the church and the state all these years. So I think we're not quite there yet, but getting much closer. And I see it in the younger generations, you know. And I don't mind too much that they don't really know what came before, because that's the nature of generations. I didn't understand the pressures of the Depression and the Second World War that my parents went through. And uh, young people today can't even imagine the terror of the AIDS epidemic, the early terrors of that. But it's okay, because if it's making them calmer, saner, happier people, precisely because history has changed, then that's what we've been working for all along. This has been a conversation with Armistead Maupin. The final book in his Tales of the City series is called The Days of Anna Madrigal. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. For 40 years, hurtling barriers both social and sexual, Armistead Maupin led our chosen family through heartbreak and triumph, through nail-biting terrors and gleeful coincidences. The result is a glittering and addictive comedy of manners that continues to beguile new generations of readers. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. She pulled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of old wine. There's nothing wrong in loving who you are She said, cause you made your perfect day So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way
Baby, I was born this way 